Okay, guys, back to Romans chapter 8. Let's proceed, um, albeit rather slowly. Um, as most of you know, we're in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. We have been for quite some time, um, and we'll be there a little bit longer. Um, Romans eight twenty-nine begins this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now let me tell you where we are. We're, we're down to verse 30. Uh, we've covered that predestined word. We did that out of verse 29. We, uh, we've covered the called word. That was what we did last week, the whole issue of effectual calling. Tonight, uh, we proceed with this next word, justify. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, guys, um, I said this a couple, three weeks ago. There is, there is room for us to dialogue and debate and um, even be confused, if, if need be, over some of the words that the Bible uh, includes. Not to denigrate or uh, try to suggest that anything is unimportant in the Scriptures. I'm not trying to say that. But, for instance, if you want to uh, uh, hassle over the predestined word, go right ahead. I mean, they've been doing that for centuries, and they'll continue to. You can even you can even hassle over the word baptism, which is not in our text, but, I mean, they've been doing that for centuries too. But you've got to understand that this next word in front of us is not a word that you can afford to be fuzzy about. Uh, if you are, I mean, you are seated here tonight as a Protestant. The Protestant Reformation took place in, um, well, it was really launched, I guess, in uh, 1519 when Martin Luther nailed those infamous 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, 1519. Uh, it really came to a kind of head in 1521. But um, as a result of God using this man, Martin Luther, the whole Protestant world came into being. Whether you know this or not, uh, may I be the first to inform you that you are a protester. You protested, and you've been protesting for the last 500 years. And the, the primary focus of your protestation is justification by faith. This word, justified. This is what separates Protestantism from Roman Catholicism. Protestantism came into being because of an understanding of justification by faith. So, gang, whereas you can afford to be somewhat fuzzy over some of the words, um, you know, foreknowledge and predestination and calling. I mean, I, I wish you weren't fuzzy, but um, I mean, you can, but you cannot afford to be fuzzy over this. This is the heart of the matter. 
the, the whole Protestant Reformation is built on an understanding of justification by faith. Alone. We'll get to that too. But So guys, um, if, if you think I've been slow in the past, we're going to slow it down some more. <laughs> I, I really believe that I could spend three weeks with you, probably longer, uh, on this one term. But I'm going to try to do it in two. I know I can do two. I mean, and I, um, but I'm, I understand that my motive is I want you to know this backwards, forwards, front ways to be able to enjoy the beauty of it because the guts of your sacred religion is this. Justification by faith. you got to know it. Uh, not be fuzzy about it. Be able to present it and explain it and defend it and all that business. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... I'm going to try to take you through it as slowly as I can. And, you know, I wouldn't even be opposed to a question or two. Uh, you know, it wouldn't bother me. Um, I'd, I'd kind of like that, except sometimes questions, when you open it up to a group this size, the questions take us in a direction that we, we don't want to go. Um, but um, now I, I must tell you that for some of you, this is going to be old hat. Um, you've maybe got this down, but uh, for others of you, this some of this might be pretty new. So if you if you ever wanted to get something, if you ever wanted to get a, a piece of your theology right, choose this one. Um, you know I don't know exactly what I believe about you know eschatology, and I don't know what I believe about ecclesiology and pneumatology, and but this this is soteriology, ladies and gentlemen. Soteriology is a it comes from a Greek word, soter, which means the Savior. This is about the whole issue of how God accomplished salvation for people like us. You've got to get this. You've got to get it. All right. Now, um, so for those of you for, this is, for which this is old hat, my, my condolences, but hopefully it, there will be portions of it that will be illuminating. Here's how I see the problem or at least part of the problem. I think there are so many words that we confuse. Yeah, we hear that word a lot, and we hear that word a lot, we hear that word a lot, and we're not real sure just of the distinctions between the words. And um, um, I, I want to show you, can, can I show you what I'm talking about? If you've got your Bible, just, just stay in Romans with me for a minute. Look over at chapter 3, verse 24. All I'm trying to say is, we come by this confusion legitimately. Uh, look, at, um, look at verse 24. This is Romans 3.24 where Paul says, And are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, what I'm suggesting to you guys is that there's that word justified and there's that word grace. And by the way, you're going to be hearing a whole lot about grace on Sunday mornings. That's what that whole thing is about uh, that we started Sunday morning. But notice in this text, are justified by his grace. Tell me, can you make a distinction in those two words? Justified and grace. Do you know how to define those two words? How are those words different? Um, by the way, you, could, you don't need to turn here. This is harder to find. Um, but, I mean, that's not the only time that you see that, that language. You can find it in Titus chapter 3, 
uh, verse 7, where Paul says uh, to uh, Titus, he says, so that being justified by his grace, there they are, again, side by side, almost side by side, justified by his grace. Do you know the distinction between those two terms? Now, let me show you another little um, uh, word that I think gets thrown in here, and we're all just wondering, well, you know, I'm not sure what I talk about. What are those? I've heard those words. I sing those words. I love those words. I believe in those words. I'm not sure I can define those words. Uh, don't turn here. Let me just read this to you. This is out of Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 24, where Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. Now, here's what I'm suggesting. There are three words that I think that we, we have a, a tendency to overlap and confuse. The three words are grace, justified, and gospel. So well, the way I want to start with you tonight is I, want to, I just want to talk to you about those three terms, and then we'll make progress with the word, I, I, I'm pretty sure. But let's talk about grace. Uh, as I said, you're going to hear a whole lot about that word. Um, we're justified by his grace. All right, what's the distinction between justified and grace? Because we're here tonight to talk about justification. But Paul lumps those things together, and, and, we, and I think there's a fair degree of confusion out there. All right, guys. Grace has to do with something about the character of God. Grace is God's predisposition to forgive sinners. Grace has to do with what God is like. He is a God who is willing to be sacrificed. Excuse me. He is willing to be reconciled. It is his grace that makes him willing to be reconciled. Um, he, um, grace refers to something about who God is. It is grace, it is that part of his nature, uh, uh, that is, he is a God of grace that prompted him to determine okay, I'm going to have to find a way to save someone as black as Jimmy Young. It is, it is, it is a description about him. Okay? So, you, so maybe you can hear Paul's language in Romans 3 where he says, I'm justified by his grace. Justification is a mechanism which flows out of His grace. Justification is not something about His character. It's something about His work. That is, because this is true of God, it prompted Him to develop this. It's a mechanism. It's a plan. It's a, it's a methodology by which he can uh, display his willingness to forgive or his predisposition to forgive. Um, now, how, how does God 
Oh, let me back up. Because of something that is true about God, he decides, okay, I'm not going to let them perish. I'm not going to let all of them perish. So he, de- he designs a means uh, by which sinners could be saved. How does he do that? That is the subject of justification. To know that he is a God of grace is simply to tell you that he's willing to do something about our predicament. But it doesn't tell you what he did. It's justification that tells you what he did. How does God accomplish forgiveness? Does he wink at it? I really wasn't, uh, I really wasn't serious about all that. <laughs> just forget it and everybody just come on in. Is that what he does? Is that how God demonstrates that he is full of grace and mercy? No, 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 no. How does God display something about his heart that is a heart of grace? Well, that's what this is going to tell you. Now, um, uh, guys, this is the theology. Now, I know that you're afraid of being a theologian and uh, you don't want to be theology. You know. Well, I love it. And you ought to love it. Because your eternity is invested in it. Well, but this is the piece of theology that exposes and reveals this. Okay? So, um, what, what, what the doctrine of justification does is reveal the extremes to which God is willing to go so that you won't have to perish. So this will tell you, oh gosh, we need to celebrate this. Oh my goodness, yes, because if he weren't this, this would have never come. But because he is that, this has come. This is his method by which he expresses this and the result being saving sinners. Now, now the, you know, uh, uh, it's Paul that's saying uh, in, in um, Acts chapter 24 that this is a gospel of grace. Um, now, so if, if this is who he is and this is what he's done, this is simply the message or the account or the summary of this. The gospel is simply, I mean, it, it is used differently when we talk about the four gospels. You're talking about books of the Bible. But when we're talking about gospel, the, the Greek word of uh, euangelion, uh, the, the good news, that's all this is. The, the, the gospel is good news about God's grace. This is a message. This is an account. This is a, a, a depiction as, as it's a summary statement about this. This simply puts in language that helps us understand um, what is required of us if we're ever going to be forgiven. It is a description of how forgiveness is to be found. Now that we've heard it's available, 
How does it become mine? This is a message. This is a mechanism. This is, the, this is a piece of the character of God. Okay? Now, um, if you can, if you can uh, get those words down, then, then what we can do is um, concentrate. I'll tell you what, let's just do all of this off. We can then, oh boy, this is not as, um, there it is. Now we can concentrate on justification. If you understand its relationship to grace and gospel. If you got that down, then we can go look at the mechanism. Because how did God do this? Ladies and gentlemen, nothing is more glorious than this. If you believe in sin, if you believe in heaven, nothing is more glorious than this. To, to depict what God, the extremes to which God is willing to go so that you can get forgiven. Whoa. Now, what I want to do is I want to break this up into four little headings. And I think we're going to have time to do the first one tonight. The heading, uh, this is the first one, and that is its author. That is the author of justification. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what the author has done. The author in this, in, in, um, of justification, um, if, you, if you're in Romans 8, you'll... Um, um, uh, it's verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see that? Um, it is God the Father who is the author of justification. Let me, let me do this again because, you know, um, I don't know whether this confuses you. I hope it doesn't. But, guys, when you say God, you've got to be more explicit than that because the term God can be used a couple of ways. When, when you're talking about trying to define something, it is not God the Son who is the author of justification. We're going to look at him. He is the, uh, he's the executor. Uh, he executes justification, but it is God the Father who is the author. And as the author... God the Father is acting as a judge. Um, now, guys, here's where we got to slow down. Because <laughs> I want you to see some of this. And I don't know whether any of these distinctions make a hill of beans to you, but they ought to. I mean, I'm not trying to make a, a moral issue out of it. I'm just saying um, we talk about these things around here. Let me tell you why we talk about them. Go with me, if you could, to... Um, Proverbs chapter 17. Now, this is not the only place that you could do this, but uh, this is the one I chose. Uh, Proverbs 17. Um, okay, Proverbs 17. Take a look with me at verse 15. Because this is going to teach you something about justification and what God is doing. Uh, 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. All right. 
This thing's backwards. You're not supposed to justify the wicked. Uh, you're, and you're, you're not supposed to condemn the righteous. So if you do something like that, that's an abomination to the Lord. That's just the point of the text. But I want you to notice what, what, what Solomon's doing. He justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous. Now, what are you supposed to do? What, what you're supposed to do is justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Okay. So if you condemn the wicked, what do you do to them? If you got some obviously wicked people and you condemn them, what have you done to them? Have you made them wicked? No, indeed. You have simply pronounced that on the basis of their behavior and actions, they are condemned because of their wickedness. I declare that you are now condemned. Okay? Pretty simple, isn't it? All right. Then, then we go to justify the righteous. What does God do when he justifies the righteous? Does he any more make the righteous righteous than when you condemn the wicked, make the wicked wicked? No. Justification is not about making you anything. It's about declaring you to be something. This act of this judge is a declarative one. And ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you, this is the fundamental difference between Protestantism and, and well, it's, not, it's one of the fundamental, between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. In terms of our, our understanding of justification. We're saying, if you're a Protestant, you say you believe this. That this God, acting as a judge, has made a declaration about me. He didn't make me anything. He didn't constitute me righteous. He declared me righteous. Guys, you might not appreciate it. Huge difference. Justification is describing God in the role of a judge making a summary declaration about the guilty. You got that? Um, this is not, justification is not constitutive. That is, it doesn't constitute you. It simply declares you. Now, we're going to get to the, the, the basis on which this declaration is made. We'll get to that next week. But you've got to understand that justification is a declarative act. It's a judge examining the situation and saying, Oh, I'm not going to make you righteous, but I am going to declare you righteous. Two different things. Um... It is a legal term describing a declarative act of God about me. That's what justification is, guys. It's a term that describes a legal act on the part of God the Father acting as judge, making a statement about me. Now, um... <laughs> 
point two, we're going to get to uh, the, the, the one who executes uh, his, his justifying plan. But, but for tonight, I want, to do, I want to close. i got seven minutes, and I want to close with a little story, um, and which will usher us into point two next week. So if, you, if, you, if you've never seen this, it might be fun to watch it or look at it a bit. If you can find 1 Samuel 14 real quick. And with this, we will stop. Guys, you, I, you might know the history of, Israel, of the Old Testament, but uh, the first king of Israel was who? God, Saul. Um, not, not the one that became Paul in the New Testament. There's a Saul in the Old Testament. The first king of Israel is a guy by the name of Saul. And, and uh, by the way, who anointed him king? Samuel. Samuel anointed him king, and then Samuel went through the anointation or whatever. <laughs> he got really, uh, he said, I'm sorry I ever made you king. Because Saul becomes a bad boy. He starts off real good, but he gets really, really bad. Saul has a son. What's his, what's his son's name? What? Jonathan. Way to go. Uh, Samuel's, I mean, Saul's son is Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, becomes David's best friend. David, who becomes the second king of Israel. But the first king was a guy by the name of Saul. Well, as, um, one of the reasons that Israel wanted a king is that they wanted somebody to lead them out in their battles against, primarily, the Philistines. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't particular. I mean, in fact, God says to Samuel, listen, they didn't reject you. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. Go ahead. I don't like it, but go ahead and give them one. The one they're rejecting uh, as their king is me. So Samuel, uh, Saul takes over, and he's doing a pretty good job. Things are going pretty good. Uh, and then uh, there's this ugly little scene that everything began uh, to go south. But on one occasion, he's fighting the Philistines, and man, they're doing a good job. By the way, this starts in verse 24. Um, uh, I mean, well, actually, the battle starts before that, but the event that I wanted, uh, if you'll notice in, in chapter 14 as it begins, Jonathan defeats the Philistines. So Jonathan is Saul's son. And they're battling the Philistines, and the guy who really was key in this victory was his son, Jonathan. But notice in verse 24, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, That is, I mean, this battle is raging, and, you know, we need every man on, on deck, and, man, don't anybody get tired on me now, because the Philistines, it's going to go either way. And, and so Saul says, um, Cursed be the man who eats food, until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. <laughs> so do you understand? We're in the midst of this battle, and Saul says, All right, we can't slow down to have a snack here. Uh, we need everybody fighting. So cursed is the man. Cursed is the man that eats food before the Philistines. I'm avenged of the Philistines. You get it? Pretty simple. Then you jump over to uh, verse 36. Oh, by the way, from there, Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan is blowing and going. He is just ripping up Philistines right and left. And on one occasion, um, oh, yeah, there it is, uh, verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff, which was in his hand, and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. You see what's happened? Saul, Saul says, don't anybody eat, because anybody's going to die. Cursed they be. And who was it that ate? His son. 
Oh, no. So uh, the battle's going, and it's just about one. And uh, verse 36, then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them alive. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Let's go pray, you know. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them in my hand? But he did not answer him that day. Oh, no. Am I supposed to go forward this battle, Lord? Uh, skies are brass. He's, they're silent. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the, of, uh, of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. So Saul senses, uh-oh, there's sin around here. The reason that God's not answering us is because there's been some sin. Here we go. Then he said to all Israel, verse 40, You shall be on one side, and I and, and, I and Jonathan, on my, uh, my son, on the, on the other side. That is, we're going to find out where the sin is. Everybody over there? Me and Jonathan over here. So they start drawing straws, casting lots. Uh, the people uh, were told, um, if this get, oh, look, verse 41. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in, my, in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim, give leadership. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. You know what, you know what Saul said? Hey, God, you've got to lead us. And I don't care where the sin is. I don't care where it is, even if it's in my own son. You let me know. Because we're going to deal with this. And so they start figuring it all out. And the people are, you know, it wasn't the people. And they're, so they're left with Jonathan and Saul. And then they figure out, uh-oh. The one who sinned was Jonathan. Um, then, jo- then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head to fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now, here's the point, guys. Um, Saul says, I don't care who it is. Who's ever the sinner, they're going to die. And the people said, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. And the people ransomed Jonathan. And Saul did not carry out his threat. To kill his son. But let me tell you about a father who did. And this father says, Wherever I find the sin, I will pour out my wrath against it. And the son steps forward and says, Okay. it is. And the father says, then you must die. And he does. And instead of the people ransoming Jonathan on a hill called Calvary, Jonathan Ransom the people. 
the Father carries out His threat and makes good on His covenant. Whoever is sin, wherever the sin is found, it will, it will surely die. So, my point is, how does God display His grace to a sinful people? He murders Jonathan! And Jonathan becomes the ransom for his people. Oh yes, ladies and gentlemen, you are justified by His grace because the Father was willing to kill His own so that He wouldn't have to kill you. How does He do it? Wink at it? Ignore it? Sweep it under the carpet? Uh-uh. No. What this God does is make a provision for it. And the provision is Jesus Christ the righteous. And the Father refuses to withdraw His hand. Oh, Saul. You can't trust Saul. He didn't make any good on his claim. he did. Forgiveness is available to folks like us. Mm. Get this one down, folks. Get it down real good. It's too glorious to miss. Our Father, I, I do pray that your people's eyes would light up like the eyes of Jonathan when he tasted honey. Might their eyes light up at the enormity of what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus for a black-hearted sinner like the pastor of Grace Evan. Oh, might there be a spirit of rejoicing among us that the Father in heaven does not issue idle threats, but He makes good on them all. And because He does, forgiveness abounds to a sinner such as I. Thank You for the privilege of talking about it, explaining it. And I pray that your spirit will make it so that it will dance in the minds and the souls of your people that never again would this be a piece of dry theological wrangling. Might it be beauty. A beauty that will capture our hearts and imaginations. Do that for the Savior's sake. We ask it in His name. Thank you and good night.